This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello! Welcome to the Platitudes episode of Slate Money. Your guide to the business and finance and jubes news of the week. <laughs> I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. Emily Peck of Axios is also here. Hello. Elizabeth Spires is Hello. here. Hello. 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 <laughs> we're, like, we're enjoying we're this because we literally, we can all touch each other. <laughs> it's, it's kind of amazing. We are, we are in a small but beautiful recording studio in Brooklyn, and it feels good for us to be together. If we sound particularly good, that's all thanks to Seaplane Armada. We are going to talk about Clatty Jubes. It's going to be fun, but we are also going to talk about food shortages. We are going to talk about Sheryl Sandberg. We're going to have a Slate Plus about CPI. It's all coming up. And if you don't know what a platy jube is, I promise we will tell you <laughs> on Slate Money. All right. Obviously, the only thing I want to talk about is platy jubes. We will get to the platy jubes, but I suppose we should cover the news first, which is Sheryl Sandberg is leaning out. <laughs> that is correct. The chief operating officer of, I feel like you'll hate this, of Meta. Meta Platforms, Inc. Which used to be Facebook and still is. We will refer to it from heretofore as Facebook <laughs> on this episode. Shall we agree? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Announced earlier this week that she was leaving Meta, Facebook. Ugh. Damn well, it. she's leaving Meta. I think that's part of the thing, right? That she was not really involved in the pivot to the metaverse. She felt excluded from all of that, from what I can tell from the reporting. And she's like, you know, if you guys are going in this completely other direction that I'm not involved in, and I'm already a billionaire, why should I stick around? Yeah, and there was a very juicy kind of report in the Wall Street Journal on Friday morning about, you know, she's feeling burnt out. She's feeling like a punching bag. She's feeling unappreciated. Oh, and also was under investigation by Facebook slash Meta for using company resources to plan her wedding, which I feel like is a thing that's fine unless the company you work for hates you, right? Right. I mean, exactly. <laughs> like, if you're Sheryl Sandberg and you get one of your assistants to draw up a guest list for your wedding, like, that is 100% normal unless things are irreparably broken and they're like, did you use your meta assistant in order to plan your personal wedding <gasps> you know, oh, but I'm, I'm interested in she could have gone out on a high note if she had left the company pre-2016 um, her longevity there is unusual by itself which speaks I suppose well of her ability to upwardly manage Zuckerberg but you know if she's seeing all these signs that she's sort of losing influence in the company and fewer people are reporting to her now mm -hmm. I think it went from something like 45% to 31% you can imagine that slowly dawning on her that she's maybe going to be pushed out eventually anyway. But, you know, I wonder when she started having this feeling that things were going south. I think probably she's been feeling like a punching bag since 2016, right? And since Cambridge Analytica and yeah. all of that. And at that point, she still felt like she was the grown-up in the room and she was the one with the political now. She obviously famously used to work at Treasury before she entered the private sector. And she's like, I can deal with these governments. But then they brought in like an actual politician to deal with all of that. And yeah, I don't think she was going to necessarily be pushed out. But people that successful and anyone who, you know, she grew a business, she was the one who really 
turned Facebook into a trillion-dollar business. There was basically no advertising when she arrived, and now they make over $100 billion a year in ads. So that ability to grow that from nothing to world beater is constantly in demand. And so she obviously has been asked to be many people's CEO. I think most people probably would have become CEO somewhere along the way. It's kind of interesting that she didn't. And my guess is that she probably won't, that she's going to try and run for Senate or something like that rather than take another corporate job. Yeah. I mean, I, it's unclear, of course, in all the statements and interviews, she said she doesn't know what she's going to do and she's going to do more work on her foundation. She's going to fight for abortion rights or something. And there was a little smidge of reporting that Facebook slash Meta didn't like her talking about that stuff. Um, and we know Facebook internally like blocks the word abortion from its internal like messaging and stuff. No way. Yeah, there was reporting, I think, a couple of weeks ago about that. Yeah, you can't say abortion on the Facebook internal messaging. And also, apparently Mark Zuckerberg blamed her for the Cambridge Analytica situation according to some reporting in the journal i think a few years later like she took the the heat for that which i thought was interesting and i don't know if it's justified or not she was famously in charge of all that <laughs> shit you know like <laughs> like mark, mark zuckerberg basically said to Cheryl, like you're in charge of everything i am you know the founder ceo visionary product person but she was probably the most powerful non-ceo in america for a long time mm -hmm. so yeah i think Blaming her for, like, people telling her that there was bad shit going on and elections were maybe being undemocratic because there was underhanded stuff going on Facebook and then not really taking it seriously until it was way too late and after the, long after the elections had happened. Yeah, that's not a good look for her. <laughs> it really messed with her reputation. I think that's what I was trying to say before. If she had left before 2016 and taken one of those CEO jobs. Possibly at Disney. Possibly at Disney. Maybe things go better for her but now she's exiting the company and i saw like i don't know like 15 pieces being like what's her legacy is it yeah. this is it that you know um, i think she kind of also just hit the limits of her expertise you know nobody knows what advertising is going to look like in vr or where any of that's going and you know if, if she built the business on the back of facebook's data systems and they're constantly being reformed to better give users more privacy then where does her potential lie. You know, if she had stayed, what else would she do? She's not a product person. Building the ad business was the entirety of her business legacy there. So I'm not sure she would have had a future for where at least Zuckerberg wants to go. Right. Which kind of makes me think, what is the future of the internet advertising <laughs> business? Like her roots are in, in Google, which is also like one of the most successful Yes, yeah, it's, it's the duopoly, right? So, yeah, that's a super interesting question because Facebook seems to have been hurt much more by Apple's pivot to privacy than Google has or mm -hmm. the other advertising platforms have. It seems to be, you know, moving more slowly, a little bit less nimble. Mark Zuckerberg is desperately trying to copy TikTok in Instagram and doesn't seem to be having a huge amount of success doing that and seems to be, like, breaking Instagram in the process. So, yeah, it's a little bit messy there right now. And she's probably thinking Diane Feinstein's going to step down in 2024, and that's what she wants to do next. And do you think anyone in California would vote for her for Senate? Elizabeth? I think, the yeah, I think they would. Person. Part of the deal is just having name ID and having people know who you are. That counts for a lot, and it depends on what she decides to do in politics. So, I mean, she's arguably 
the most well-known female executive in the Fortune 500 at a top public company. Like, I can't think of... She's a right. one I mean, name. She, she's, she's a one yeah, name. Yeah, she, she's not even Oprah, the CEO, Cheryl. and everyone knows who Cheryl is. Right? Yeah. Whereas someone like Safra Katz at Oracle, like, no one knows who she is. Yeah. So that's why I guess we're talking about her. She, she would be the only person in politics who understands whether her Facebook's targeting system really works. Oh, <laughs> yeah. She would yeah. have an edge there, yeah, I guess. But I mean, I remember when she wrote lean in and she was on the book tour and she would like swing through new york and invite all of the bloggers to have lunch with her and everyone's like "Ooh, we get to have lunch with cheryl sandberg and she had this kind of mystique and aura to her back then and she has definitely lost that oh yeah at this point. i mean back in even before the book launch she had this like ted talk where she talked about women need to be they need to lean in they need to sit at the table and all this and like it was a real like thrilling like people were really into it and it, no one had been really talking about all that stuff very much. And I think she did make change, like make an impact. I think anytime you talk to someone about how much money you make and then go ask your boss for a raise, I feel like she did that a little bit, even though she wouldn't want you to do that at Facebook, probably. I mean, Lee Lee Edwin's kind of a double-edged sword. It's a, she sort of said, okay, part of the problem is that when women are as aggressive as men, they get penalized for it, but also it's up to women to be more aggressive. And so depending on which side of that coin you're, you're looking at, you know, lean was either a positive development or it just reinforces the idea that when women don't succeed in a corporate environment, it's really their fault. Oh, for sure. It was a lot of that, like, it's you, you're the problem. Like, women are just too timid and all this, which yeah. was good that she was kind of saying, like, do it anyway. There's been so much backlash to her since then. Like, she only talks about women with partners, not single women. She didn't really consider, like, black women can't just lean in. Like, there's racism, like, all of that. So, and then all the weird stuff happened with Elizabeth Holmes and, like, all those female CEOs. I just feel like her, Sheryl Sandberg's initial premise just got so backlashed out that I've just been thinking the past few days, like, actually, it was really, like, a big deal. And, like, it it was actually something. There's a girl boss backlash now right yeah, there was just a, an era where I, I feel like people like Sandberg were on a pedestal a little bit and and you saw these younger CEOs coming up who were more visible in yeah. the ecosystem and then you have one or two people like Holmes who sort of destroy the the entire perception of like you know there was a time you know when Facebook went public that Mark Zuckerberg was this great American success story and people were like, oh, Mark Zuckerberg, he's, you know, a millennial billionaire. Isn't this amazing? I mean, it's hard to remember these times. And yeah, there have been a lot of girl bosses who've been tarnished, but it's hard to think of even like guy bosses who people are like, oh my God, what a great CEO. Like in general, the boss class seems to have lost its luster over the past couple of years. I think it kind of, Steve Jobs, I don't know, was the... He was the last, like, universally admired boss. But, yeah, I forget <laughs> that people used to think Mark Zuckerberg was, like, boy genius, basically. And now everyone thinks he's, like, robot weirdo. I don't know. I don't have a good catchphrase for him. So, yeah, so if Mark and Cheryl, the sort of avatars of who we should aspire to become anymore, <laughs> is there anyone in business who's, like got that golden aura oh, certainly not elon question. who's the least hated ceo no. everyone hates everyone now <laughs> right i mean people do like elon <clears throat> some people like elon oh, like, no we're not supposed to talk about when we're not uh, that man we're not meant to talk <clears throat> about that we man. don't talk about mm. but, uh, <laughs> but yeah it's it's hard to think right i mean is anybody i mean tim cook maybe, maybe. i feel like people oh, are yeah. neutral I feel, I feel yeah people people are neutral people are the yeah he's a good operator they respect him but he doesn't have that sort of oh my god 
Tim Cook transformed, blah, 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 you know? He's a genius. The, the, the credit still goes to Steve Jobs for that one. So I wonder what it is, why people don't idolize genius CEOs anymore. They kind of prove themselves to be terrible. And- oh, because some of them go on Twitter and demonstrate publicly that they're not really geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably... It's, it's partly that. And I think it's also weirdly partly the fact that the broad stock market did so well during the pandemic that we realized that it wasn't down to any individual CEO genius because everything went up and to the right. And now... And now everything's going down and to the right. <laughs> but, but also the things that went up the most are going down the most, right? So you have like the Netflixes and even Facebook is down like 50% from its highs. Yeah. So it's hard to look like a genius when your stock is down so far, even if it's up over the long term. And all those like cool pandemic companies, I couldn't tell you the names of their CEOs. Peloton. Peloton. Zoom. Zoom. Yeah, I don't know who the Zoom CEOs. I feel like I read a profile, but it was like in one yeah. year out the other. Let's move on. Let's talk about food. Apparently, there's not enough of it, and this is causing a lot of suffering. I wrote about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago in my newsletter, that when we talk about food inflation in the United States, what we're talking about is this basic race for people to buy something that there isn't enough of to go around. And the winners are the people who win that bidding war, and the losers are the people who lose the bidding war and who just can't afford to buy it and basically don't have any food. And in America, those people are still, thankfully, few and far between. Globally, they're not. And we're seeing riots in Sri Lanka. And uh, there are lots of countries where there is genuine catastrophic food shortage, obviously Afghanistan. But even in relatively stable countries, you're seeing this. And one of the drivers here is the war in Ukraine, because Ukraine was a massive exporter of wheat. Wheat is an absolute staple across much of the world. And if you lose those wheat exports from Ukraine, even though Russia's exporting more, they're not nearly picking up the slack from what's being lost from Ukraine. That's just really hurting the world. Yeah. I mean, Russia and Ukraine together are a quarter of the world's wheat supplies. Well, so let's be clear about this, because we, I like, this is one of the statistics that people get very confused about. They're a quarter of the world's wheat exports. Exports, They're yeah. not a quarter of the world's wheat production. That The world produces about 775 million tons of wheat each year. I looked this up. It exports about 200 million okay. tons. So there are, but the point about the exports is the exports are what you need to even everything out. Because you can't assume that everyone can feed themselves, especially not in the age of global warming. We're seeing this right now in India, especially is seeing a very bad year for Um, agriculture because of global warming. So you need the exports and a significant change to the exports has massive ripple effect. Yeah, because some countries, I think like Egypt and some other Middle Eastern and African countries, they're importers of wheat, not exporters. Like they need the Russian and Ukrainian wheat, which I guess is cheaper than wheat from some other countries. So they're like particularly vulnerable to what's happening right now, which is Russia is essentially keeping Ukraine from exporting wheat that these countries need. Right. You, Russia has it now controls all of Ukraine's sea ports. Right. So Ukraine finds it very difficult to to export anything right now. So the, the U.S. and its allies in the West, they're running this economic war against Russia, and they're kind of trying to destroy the Russian economy and blocking all kinds of, shutting down all kinds of business with, with Russia. And what Russia's doing is they can't really retaliate I mean, they are retaliating a bit against the West, but their real retaliation 
is like hurting these really poor countries and these very vulnerable people who can't now get food. Do you know what I mean? It's I mean, like, they're, they're picking up their own wheat exports, Russian exports of wheat at an all-time high right now because they need the money and because they can. And other exports like Canada is doing has record wheat exports as well. But yeah, like... But the Obviously prices the, are shooting up. The, because, the, and, and also, yeah, the, you want to export as much. If you can export, you do right now because the prices are so attractive. Even for Russia, where a lot of Western countries refuse to buy Russian wheat exports because it's on the sanctions list. Other countries like Iran or whoever will happily buy that wheat and will pay slightly lower than international market prices, but still a lot of money for it. Also, there's a potentially complicated way out of this, which is that you ease sanctions on Belarus and ship wheat through there, which everybody's hesitant to do because that sort of rewards Russian aggression there. Yeah, there are short-term fixes, which aren't real fixes, but there's a couple of other things going on. One is that food is carbon in a kind of very profound way that most international agribusiness uses a huge amount of artificial fertilizer to grow its food. And artificial fertilizer is made via the Haber-Bosch process, and the Haber-Bosch process uses oil, right? So, like, you are literally turning oil into wheat and corn and rice, you know? So that's one big picture thing that the world needs to grapple with. And obviously, when oil prices, when energy prices are high, that feeds through into food prices. So then the second thing is just global warming, right? Which is, if Russia invading Ukraine can have this much of an effect on global food prices, that's big and important. But ultimately, compared to the kind of effect of like catastrophic global warming, it's small. This is an interesting trial run for something that we're going to have to start getting used to on a regular basis. That's what's interesting about India. You mentioned India. They're a big wheat exporter, but... I think two weeks ago, they stopped exporting wheat because of climate change, because of a drought. They were worried they didn't have enough, so they stopped exporting, and that's driving up the cost of wheat even more. So it's like— Wheat is the new vaccines. Yeah. If you have, like, one crisis or something, like a war, and then global warming is there, climate change is there to kind of, like, exacerbate all problems at any time. Not to mention the fact that it all feeds in on itself and the— global warming and the effect that it has on agricultural production Mm -hmm. causes wars, you know, and it causes international wars and it causes civil wars. And yeah, it's a really nasty bunch of vicious cycles. And then you have the World Bank coming along and saying, well, we're going to give $12 billion to try and smooth out dislocations in agricultural supply chains. You're like, yeah, that's not going to help. I mean, it'll help a little bit at the margin, but $12 billion isn't going to get you very far. And then you go and you look back through history and bread starts wars. Shortages of bread are like behind the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution. There were a few more that I saw. Arab Spring. I mean, this is like, it's bad. When you mess with people's food. Yeah, it's pretty basic. It's the definition of a a basic, especially in (laughs) Europe. And yeah, and it's bread and water. They cause wars. Okay, but really what we want to talk about... (laughs) (laughs) It's Plathy Jubes. Tell listeners what that is because I I didn't know. I'm not enough of an Anglophile to intuitively know, so Mm -hmm. I had to Google it. I I thought, is this a new NFT that I should know about? (laughs) Basically, yeah, basically, the Queen of England has amazing jubes, and this is the the platiest of of the jubes. So, yeah, I've just been walking around Manhattan or biking around Manhattan, just saying platy jubes out loud because it's such a great thing to say. So, yeah, 
I can't explain it. Yes, you can. Emily, <laughs> what is what is a platy G? <laughs> right now, England is celebrating Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee. It's the Platinum Jubilee, which means 70 years. She's been reigning as the Queen of England for 70 years. And this actually happened in February, but in very English style. They're like, we don't want to celebrate anything in February when it's cold and wet and miserable. We're going to wait until the summer, and then we're going to give ourselves a four-day weekend, and we're just going to have flags everywhere, and we're going to have Prince Charles looking like an utter idiot on a horse and wearing a bearskin hat, and we're going to have more pomp and circumstance than you can possibly imagine. And the entire country of England, and I'm saying England advisedly here, has gone completely batshit, and suddenly in the throes of a royalist fervor right now. I don't think this is true of Scotland and Wales. And it's, I don't see a lot of platy-jube fervor in Canada or Australia. It does seem to be a very English thing that seems to have been orchestrated specifically by Boris Johnson in a desperate attempt to boost his popularity ratings, which has failed, because when he turned up to St. Paul's Cathedral for the platy-jube service, he got booed loudly, and everyone's like, ooh, we didn't expect that. And I guess there's a... Well, first I wanted to say it, I got a little bummed out because, okay, so there's this platy jubes, platinum jubilee. There was also a gold jubilee, right, at 50 years? 20 years ago, yeah. Yeah, 50 years. And then there was something in between. There was silver, which was silver. It, which was 25. And, now, and then was, was there like diamond? Yeah, there was diamond. Yeah. So there was gold and diamond and now platinum. And I'm thinking to myself, and this, this woman, this Elizabeth lady, she's like 96 years old. Yeah. This platinum jubilee. There's nowhere to go from no, Platinum. No, no. This, is, this, <laughs> is, this is, is it. This is it. This is the last hurrah. She's made it to 96 or whatever, and she's looking pretty good for 96, but she's not going to stick around it's that actually, much longer. It's actually really dark. It's a celebration of a four-day weekend, and it has weird economic implications, I guess we can discuss, but like, it's really actually quite dark. Well, you know how everyone like says judge a person by how many people turn up to their funeral, you know, <laughs> which is the one thing that you can't ever see. Right by that, like this is Queen Elizabeth's. Uh, she can look out and see basically how many people are going to turn out to her funeral, and this is like a way of showing that to her while she is still around to appreciate it. This is her funeral. <laughs> <laughs> this whole episode is just going very dark. It's so dark. It's very end of the world feeling, but it's fine because the UK won't be in a recession because of this or something? They were going to have a little bit of a contraction because I guess the four-day bank holiday or the four-day weekend shaved half a point off of GDP. How? I don't understand that. Well, GDP is very flat and miserable right now. So if you throw in an extra four-day weekend, that's enough people not working to tip GDP into negative territory. But the good news is (laughs) that because it bounces back from the negative territory in the third quarter... Because you don't have another jubilee in the third quarter, then you get positive growth from the second quarter to third quarter, and then everyone's being like, well, in that case, it wasn't really a recession, was it? Okay, so we talked about the economic part. Now let's get back to the monarchy. <laughs> um, is this it for the British monarchy? Like, One everyone hates Prince Charles, right? So, like, once this lady, Elizabeth, goes, it's all chaos and Also, why do the English romanticize the monarchy to begin with? Yeah, Felix. It's such a good question. I mean, it's so I think the answer, honestly, is related to the answer to like, why did they vote to leave the European Union? And I don't understand that either. None of it makes any sense to me. I do think that 
white English people in particular, a lot of them, especially if they're older, tend to like the idea of being British. And they have this idea that they can, they're old enough to remember when Britain ruled the waves or something equally idiotic. And they look back fondly on the era of colonialism, basically. And if you look at all of the pageantry that is associated with the monarchy, a lot of it was introduced under Victoria, right, at the height of the colonial era mm. in order to impress the natives, basically. And it's disgusting in its own way. But this is an opportunity. If you look at the pictures from the Platinum Jubilee of Prince Charles in his bearskin hat on his horse with his bearskin hat being <laughs> like 20% higher than anyone else's bearskin hat because he's 20% more important and whatever, and he's going to become king. Like, we have this weird nostalgia for colonialism, which I think you see in the pageantry, which was invented during the colonial era. And I think that's why it's not going down nearly as well in the rest of the world, or even in the other nations of Great Britain, right? So I think that Elizabeth is right, that this is the beginning of the end of the monarchy. It seems to have contracted down to a kind of nativist English mm. core. And once the queen isn't around anymore, and she's been the glue holding this entire firm together, it's hard to see a similar level of public support for Charles. The queen is like Sheryl Sandberg on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're going to have to unpack that one. What? Uh, I, don't, I don't think I can. I was just riffing, but she's a very powerful woman who... That's it. I have nothing. <laughs> I have nothing. Just cut this out. She didn't have to lean in because she was born at the table. <laughs> She's but. been leaning in. She is not stepping down. She is going out. You know what, Elizabeth? <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, you were named after the Queen. Can you you tell have us the same name. About, yeah, you're, you're, the expert on, you're, all, you're the expert on all things Elizabeth around here. So what, what is your take on Platy Jude? <laughs> The English mystify me all the time. So this is, uh, this is just one more example. I did read an FT column today where they were like just heaping praise on her for 70 years of not sharing her opinion, of just being there, <laughs> of like just a steady presence and a smile that can solve problems. Like I didn't really get it. It just seemed That's like kind of, her, her job definitely has a, the lowest possible minimum requirements. She has to <laughs> stay alive, not say anything, yeah, show up to things. If you think about it, though, because we were just talking about CEOs in these times and how social media ruined them all for us because now we know that they're actually the worst. But, like, Elizabeth, she has not revealed herself to be the worst. She keeps a tight hold on everything. We don't have to she hasn't been read her posting. tweets. She, ha she doesn't shitpost. Like, and maybe she hasn't there been is, canceled yet. Maybe there is something to be said about that in 2022 that she's, like, off Twitter and doesn't say, like, just the dumbest shit on social media. And congratulations for her platy-jubes. Well done, Queen. Congratulations on your platitudes. I hope that the entire monarchy gets abolished the day after you die. But knowing my luck, it won't because Britain is terrible and it never makes the right decision. Let's have a numbers round. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth, what's your number? 4,756,940. Uh, I'm going back to my having the giant numbers in the numbers round. That's the number of Lego that fell off of a container ship in 1997. I also learned, this was from a New Yorker article last week, that uh, the plural of Lego is just Lego. It's like fish. So 
Well, wait, what, what do you mean it's like fish? It's in the sea, therefore it's like fish. No, the, the plural of Lego is just Lego. Like, oh, I see. Like, like deer, like, you know. Gotcha. Yes. Okay. So there are 4.8 million Lego in the sea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, no. Somewhere around Cornwall, people collect them. Like little kids go looking for them because there's a specific kind of dragon Lego. Also, hilariously, a lot of the Legos were ocean themed. So there were fish and scuba divers. Oh, that's so now cute. they're just all over the beaches. But th- this is part of a <laughs> phenomenon where 1,382 containers go overboard on ships every year with various things. And because they only get reported to the people who are ordering the containers, it's probably more than that. That's that's just an estimate. A lot of the containers, yeah, are just part of supply chains. And they're on their way from the manufacturer to the wholesaler. And they all just get sorted out with insurance. But some of them are people's belongings. Remember when Tracy Alloway had her container stuck on a boat for months and eventually she got it. Well done, Tracy. I love the idea of going to the beach to hunt for Lego. (laughs) (laughs) Like you get your shells, you look for starfish and you pick up some Lego. It's it's a collector's item. Once it's been in the sea for a while, it gets a nice patina. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess it's not great for the environment, but it sounds like a blast. It's great if you're under five. Yeah. Fish don't you know, walk, so they're not going to hurt themselves stepping on the Lego, which is good. Well, so that, that famous meme of the shark that steps on the Lego? <laughs> <laughs> right, the famous meme. The famous meme. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to jump in here and say that for one of the first and possibly only time, my number is bigger than Elizabeth's number. My number is 5.8 billion, which is the number of dollars that were owed to the U.S. government by students who went to Corinthian colleges, which was this evil, terrible, for-profit scam, basically, which barely taught anyone and certainly gave no transferable skills. There were 560,000 of these borrowers. Collectively, they owed $5.8 billion. And the American government has now said, you don't owe a penny. We've canceled the whole thing because it was unconscionable. Well done, American government. That's good. Yeah, it's really good. Meanwhile, they're like trying to forgive a little bit of $10,000 or something of student loans. This this, seems smart. This, yeah, I mean, for Corinthian College, it makes sense. You know, we have been talking for months in, like, the Slate Money Slack back channel. Like, when and whether do we talk about student loan forgiveness? And the general consensus seems to be when there seems to be an actual proposal on the table that might actually happen. But that's been going on for ages, and we don't seem to be any closer True. I think smaller steps like this kind of get people inured to the idea that it could happen, you know, especially mm. people who oppose it, because this story in particular highlights a, a really just systemic unfairness that I think even the people who are anti-cancel student loans are somewhat sympathetic to. So maybe they can move sentiment in that direction. So it's widening Baby the steps. Overton window. There you go. Overton window. Well done. My number is 42. That's the lowest. That's the number of days a four-bedroom house in Star, Idaho has gone without even anyone looking at it, according to this real estate agent I spoke to a week and a half ago. I'm telling you this because— in, Is that near Boise? Felix. Because, <laughs> because Boise was like the hottest real estate market in the pandemic real estate boom. And it looks like, according to my reporting, that— it's no longer so hot. Or is like, Boise real estate the peloton of the real estate market? I think it is. Yes. <laughs> now, um, now a lot of people are like, oh, we don't have to move to Boise. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. They're like, oh, well, white uh, so I'm sure Boise is the, the wonderful, though. <laughs> but yeah, so the Idaho boom might be coming to an end. And I think I talked about Idaho like a few months ago, and I got a lot of messages from people 
who live there, who are thinking of living there, who have left there. So keep sending me your messages about Idaho. I'm super interested. The Idaho property market is reverting. I mean, I, I feel like 42 days without a bid is wouldn't have raised much of an eyebrow a couple of years ago. No, but in the boom, it was like you say, we're having an open house on Sunday and you'd have a line out the door and the thing would sell in days. The real estate agent I spoke to was like, this is really weird. Like for the past year or two, it's just been like, go, 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 go. And now it's more like, wait, 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 wait. Just more normal. Yeah. Which is fine. Which is probably good. Because probably good. Honestly, if you're buying a house, you should probably think about it before doing it. <laughs> Have a yes. minute to like get your finances in order, work out how close it is to the schools, whether you can afford it, how much the mortgage is. Do an inspection. Yes, a lot of people were waving inspections during the craze and then wound up with houses where everything's, you know, falling apart. I read all those stories, of course. So yeah, taking more time is a good idea. So well done, everyone who managed to avoid buying a house during the craze. With any luck, you get to be a bit more considered, even if you don't get much of a price cut as mm. of yet. And yeah, that's it for Slate Money this week. Unless you are one of the lovely, lovely people who subscribe to Slate Plus. If you are, then we are going to talk about did you read my CPI story? Do you want to talk about inflation? I could. Let's talk about inflation. Okay. Yeah, because um, Emily has a wonderful piece about inflation and the measuring thereof. So we are going to talk about that in Slate Plus. Otherwise, just make sure you keep on sending us emails. We do love them very much. Slatemoney at slate.com. And many thanks to the amazing Jessamine Molly who saved us today and hosted us in the glorious Seaplane Armada Studios in Brooklyn, New York. So many thanks to her for putting this together and we will be back next week with more Slate Money. Okay, Emily. Felix. I love it when you get nerdy and you nerded out this week on measuring CPI. And yeah. what I learned was that the way CPI put, is put together is that they send out a survey and a bunch of people like write down on a piece of paper how much they're charging for stuff. And then they send it back to the government and the government opens up all of these envelopes and says, oh, I guess you're charging this much. And then they add it all together and do a bit of long division and then a number comes out. <laughs> And some some very smart people, and this exists on the on the internet already with the Million Prices Project and stuff like that, are saying, well, we know how much things cost because it's all on the internet. Maybe we should start just looking at the internet to find out how much things cost. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, it's a little more complicated than just like stores filling out surveys to tell the Bureau of Labor Statistics how much stuff costs. They have staff that go to the stores that are like picking up the butter. There's a great Planet Money episode about this where, you know, they're like, okay, unsalted butter. They write down the price and all that. That all got shot to hell during the pandemic and they had to do a little bit online. But yeah, it's still very manual and it's weird exactly for the reason you said, like there's all this data. There's no reason not to do it. Other countries are using big data to figure out CPI. So it's kind of like it's time. The thing which, I mean, I, I think it is time and I really love the fact that the United States is going to slowly discover that the internet exists and is going to use it in aggregating probably one of the most important, if not the most important economic statistic that we have. The only slight worry I have is there is so much conspiracy theorizing about CPI. I get 
incredibly intelligent and sophisticated people coming up to me and saying, well, officially CPI is at 8%, but if they measured it the same way that they did back in the 1970s, it would be 15%. And people believe this stuff. And it's all based on absolutely nothing. But there's all of this conspiracy theorizing about CPI. And if the government itself is coming out and saying, well, there are weaknesses with it, then that's only going to make it even more likely that people are going to not believe the official figures. I think some of it, too, is if you're talking to people of a certain age, they remember the Boskin Commission in 1996 where mm-hmm. they reformed the way that they calculate the CPI, and they, they explicitly said they thought it was overstated. Mm-hmm. So now people kind of think that the lower version of the CPI that we went with is somehow missing some things. And that Yeah, and, and just higher. to be clear, like, If inflation was overstated back then, that does not mean that if you measured inflation today the way you measured it back then, then it would be higher. Oh, sure. But it allows them to say, well, the BLS has been wrong before. It's not precise, right? Like one thing I learned doing this was different income groups might face different rates of inflation because like if you're very poor, a lot of your money you spend on food and gas, right, and heating or whatever. So if those prices go up, your personal rate of inflation will be higher than a wealthy person who only spends a small fraction of their money and their income on that stuff. Like, and depending where you live, you might face a higher rate of inflation. Yeah, I've I've written a lot about how food and gas prices hurt rural and suburban people much more than they hurt urban people. And there are lots of different CPIs already, right? The one Mm -hmm. we all talk about is this thing called CPIU. Mm -hmm. But there's a billion, well, not a billion, but there's like a dozen others that people Mm -hmm. can look at if they want to. But you're absolutely right that none of them are segmented according to income. But then again, like, I like the idea of segmenting according to income. But clearly, as we were discussing, a poor person in rural Alabama who has to spend a lot of money on food and energy is going to have a very different personal inflation rate than a poor person in New York City who Mm -hmm. has access to the subway and walks to the supermarket. Oh, and the other thing I learned about the difference between poor people and wealthier people's rates of inflation is that poor people and wealth, this is so obvious when I say it out loud, but poor people and wealthier people just buy completely different kinds of things. Like they, we all buy food, but like the- We buy different food. We buy different food. Even when we buy butter, it's like different butter and wealthier people are able to sort of like make more substitutions and stuff like that. So I don't know. I thought that was fun to buy things. About. Yeah, they spend a lot more. One of the things that has gone up a lot over the past year is air travel. Right. <laughs> Poor people don't generally spend a huge amount on air travel. Rich people generally spend quite a lot on air travel. Yeah. So, yeah, it changes. And it was just so fun to learn about. And then I also learned that um, – I'm sorry. You guys probably want to go. No, we love it. We love it. Okay, so I also learned, like, when the pandemic happened, the weights in the basket – like, so the, the BLS looks at a basket of goods and, like, figures out what percentage of your money goes to services versus stuff. And the pandemic hit, and services spending went – flatlined. No one went to restaurants. No one took planes. No one did anything. And they bought a lot of goods. Everyone knows this. But like the basket weighing process only updates like every two years or something. So there's this cool chart in this report I looked at where you see like airfare inflation kind of stays elevated after the pandemic, even though it wasn't anymore, even though no one was flying. It just the weighing process hadn't they hadn't reweighed yet. So it was all kind of kablooey for a while. And that was really interesting, too. We did have a major, I wrote about this in, I think, May 2020, was there was this huge statistics crisis. Yeah. No one could, all of the historic ways that the government collected 
data to produce statistics, they weren't able to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And CPI, it turns out, was just one of them. In, in hindsight, it was fine. CPI inflation was like the least of our worries in, yes. in April 2020. And if it was slightly off, no one really minds. But yeah, like getting back onto a stable footing, especially right now when we don't really have a decent gauge for what is normal in terms of how much we spend on different things, because everything is still very out of whack, the supply chains are all weird and that kind of thing, is it's a really tough nut to crack. And inflation statisticians work incredibly hard. And the United States, I have to say, has some of the best in the world. There are some countries which are famously good at inflation statistics. And the U.S. is one of them. We do it well, and we're going to get better with you know looking at the internet. Um, but they move slowly because by their nature, they're very conservative. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a world which is moving fast, then any statistical agency that moves slowly is going to be behind the curve. Mm, that's true. They have a really cute um, blog for the BLS called Commissioner's Corner. <laughs> <laughs> and um, in 2019, when they announced they were going to like improve the CPI, which was an ill-fated timing, right? December 2019, they, they said, even the best teams, like the world champion Washington Nationals, can't rest on their laurels. <laughs> um, yeah, so also the BLS really likes the Washington Nationals is something I learned. But they say, like, we're the best. We are the gold standard. But, you know, we could always get better. And I respected that. Wow, in our government, in these times, uh, made me happy. Yeah, and that was 2019. That mm-hmm. was under Trump. Yeah. Oh, and then the end says, we'll be back to you in 2021 with the final results. And I was like, oh, oh, BLS. <laughs> oh, <grasshopper. laughs> you have no idea what is to come. <laughs> 